In the Buddha's teachings, there is a great vastness of vision, vision of understanding. (coughs) Buddha talked of 31 different planes of existence, from the lower realms of suffering to the human realm, to the higher realms of heaven worlds, the devas, the brahmas. He spoke of countless world systems, each of the world system with this set of 31 planes of existence. So there are an infinite number of world systems. He talked about countless lifetimes of beings born and dying and reborn. But for most of us, probably the scope of this vision is somewhat outside of our range of experience. (laughs) But another way of understanding the vastness of the vision is not so much in the cosmology, you know, and in the realms and worlds outside, but in the depth or vastness when we look inside into the very nature of our consciousness, the nature of mind, the nature of awareness. of really seeing at the depths how suffering is created in our minds, because that is where it's created, and the possibility, the potential for freedom. Not theoretically, not considering this as a philosophic investigation, but really an investigation of our moment-to-moment experience. All of the Buddhist traditions, of the various schools, and all of the teachings converge in one understanding of what liberates the mind. And the Buddha said it very often in the texts, in the suttas. It's a refrain that is continually repeated. He said, the supreme state of sublime peace has been discovered by the Tathagata, the word he uses to refer to himself, namely liberation through non-clinging. He said, this is the deathless, what is beyond the cycle of birth and death, namely liberation through non-clinging. It's a very direct pointing to what we need to do. Centuries later, in India, one of the great Indian adepts, Talopa, gave the same advice in different language to his disciple, Naropa, who in turn was the teacher of Marpa and Milarepa, and so the beginning of that whole lineage of Tibetan Buddhism. Talopa, to Naropa, you are not fettered by appearances. You are not fettered by experience. You are fettered by attachment. So cut your attachments. Non-clinging is not some state for us to imagine you know, in a far-off future that maybe if we practice long enough, we'll get a glimpse of what non-clinging means. 
It's really what our practice is, moment to moment. Now, all the techniques we use, all the the practices, the methods, all the different metaphysical systems serve this end. It serves the end, serves the experience of the mind free of craving, free of grasping, free of clinging. Our unfolding experience, as you have seen endlessly now, our unfolding experience is constantly changing. Sometimes it's pleasant, sometimes it's unpleasant. But the practice of liberation, the practice of freedom, always remains the same. We're not practicing, and this, let this one go in. Okay. (laughs) If nothing else goes in, let this one go in. We are not practicing for some better experience. But somehow it is so hard to get that. You know, the the force of the mind of that grasping or wanting or craving is so powerful. We are not practicing in order to have some better experience. however wonderful, however pleasant, however delightful the experience may be, we're practicing what the Buddha called the heart's release. The freedom of the heart's release is in the non-grasping mind. So how can we accomplish this? And the teaching is very clear. How can we accomplish this for ourselves in our own practice, in our lives? One avenue, one way to realize, to experience this mind of no grasping is through an increased, an increasing refinement an exploration, an awareness of impermanence, of change. When we look carefully, when we're not distracted, when we're paying attention, we can become aware of change, of impermanence, on whatever level we choose to look at, because it characterizes everything, it characterizes all experience. We could look at the most macro things that we might imagine, the birth and deaths of galaxies or clusters of galaxies or something just immensely big. They also come into existence and pass away. They're not permanent. Down to the smallest, tiniest subatomic particles and everything in between. There is nothing in the world of existence that is not showing this nature of constant change. All the changes in nature, the changes of season, the changes of weather, today. (laughs) 
It's just in constant movement, in constant flux. You know, you go for a walk, whether it's a walk in the woods or just a walk back and forth, you know, on your meditative path. The experience at the end of the walk is completely different than what you experienced at the beginning. And not only from beginning to end, but even the last moment has fallen away. Our life, our experience, is a constant flow. It's a current of changing elements, changing experience. We sometimes see this very clearly and vividly and intensely in certain stages of meditation. One of the stages of insight that is a particularly profound one and a real turning point in our spiritual journey is called the stage of seeing arising and passing away. And that happens when we're seeing very carefully, very minutely, the momentariness of all phenomena. When we're so connected to this flow of change, and we're seeing moment after moment the arising and dissolving of whatever, a sound, a thought, a sensation, a breath. But there's something quite amazing about the power of our delusion. It's amazingly strong. Because we know, personally, and from our experience, that when we look back at all the experiences that have happened in our lives, from the distant past to yesterday to the sitting this afternoon, when we look back at our past experience, it becomes so clear and so obvious the ephemeral, dreamlike, insubstantial nature of it all. Where are all those experiences now? You know, if you think of your best experience on retreat, you know, just, it was fantastic. The mind actually got quiet for a moment. (laughs) Or the worst experience, you know, the multiple hindrance attack. And you're just sitting there struggling and frustrated. Right in this moment, where are those experiences? They're gone. When we look back, it's so obvious that experience has this insubstantial nature because of its impermanence, because nothing lasts. But the power of our delusion is that even though we know this, when we look ahead our mind just becomes dazzled by the array of possibilities. You know, as if somehow some new experience is finally going to do it for us. Even though every experience we've had until now has not. (laughs) What are we thinking? Through a precise and careful and direct experience in the moment of the changing nature of whatever arises. So that we go not just from an intellectual understanding, yes, this is true, but we are really seeing it 
moment after moment, that all experience is just an endlessly passing shower. It's like water over a waterfall. Through seeing this clearly, what happens is that we loosen the grip of attachment and clinging in the mind. We begin deconditioning the tremendously strong habit of grasping. Because we see for ourselves that there is nothing that we can hold on to. And we make this very personal. This liberating power of seeing the truth of impermanence was expressed in a very radical statement of the Buddhas. In a way, it's a shocking statement. He said that it would be better to live for a single day seeing the arising and passing, the momentariness of phenomena in that stage of arising and passing away where we really are deeply seeing the impermanence. Better to live a single day seeing that than to live a hundred years without seeing it. Oh, what's shocking about that is when you balance all of the things we value in our life and a hundred years of all those things we value on one side and on the other side a single day of seeing the impermanence on this level, the Buddha is saying that's more valuable. Why? Because it's through the seeing of it that we actually open the door to freedom. Everything else, in one way or another, can keep us enmeshed, can keep us entangled. And it may be very delightful and have many wonderful qualities or aspects, but they're not actually freeing the mind from grasping, from clinging. So how can we refine this perception or awareness of change in our practice as you're sitting and walking and going through the day. One helpful approach would be to notice not only what it is that's arising, you know, as we do with the noting, not only acknowledging what it is, and not only aware of our relationship to it, but also making a point of noticing, of being there to see what happens to each arising object. So there's a sound, there's a sensation, there's a thought, there's a feeling, there's an emotion, whatever it is. Bring your investigation, bring your attention to notice what's arising, see what the relationship to it is, and notice what happens to that experience it will become very obvious that whatever is arising at any of the six sense doors reveals the great truth of change. Sounds disappear. The breath comes and goes. Sensations change and move around. 
And within each one of these objects, if we look more carefully, a sound is not just a single thing, or a breath, or a sensation. Within a sound, how many momentary changes, you know, vibration, or how many sensations within a single breath. We begin to deconstruct this notion of solidity. If we are interested, if we are motivated in the possibility of freedom, in the possibility of liberation, the Buddha gave, again, some very specific advice for seeing or being with that aspect of experience which most conditions our attachments. And that is our relationship to pleasant and unpleasant feelings. Because that's where we get caught. It's not so much in the object. We get caught by attachment to what's pleasant or attachment to pushing away what's unpleasant. So this is what the Buddha said, and he said it again extremely directly and precisely. He said, whatever feelings arise associated with any object, you know, whether pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, whether it's with a sound or the breath or a sensation or an emotion or a sight, whatever feelings arise, whether pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, abide contemplating impermanence in those feelings. Contemplate the fading away, the relinquishment, the letting go of those feelings. Contemplating thus, we do not cling to anything in this world. When we don't cling, there is no agitation. When not, when not agitated, we personally attain Nibbana. So it's going from the immediacy of our present experience to the depth of attaining Nibbana. Through the seeing, the reflecting, the precision of noticing the impermanence of all of these feelings, feeling in the sense of things being pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Everything we do in our practice, you know, all the different tools we use, whether it's the tool of a primary object and concentrating the mind or mental noting, they all are serving the purpose, the end of the mind of non-clinging, the mind of non-grasping. So this seems like a very clear teaching of the Buddhas with regard to what will liberate our minds from suffering. But in case we still don't get it, <laughs> because the habit of clinging is very strong, it's amazingly deep. The Buddha went further. He didn't just stop with that. He laid out those arenas where we habitually do cling. So he highlighted them for us, and he said, pay attention here. 
because this is a good likelihood that the clinging is going to happen in one of these areas. So again, it's really tremendously compassionate. It just keeps you know, urging us. So what is it that we cling to? And this is true, these are arenas of grasping both in our meditation practice and also in our daily lives. From the perspective of no clinging, there is no difference. The first area where we get caught a lot is in the area of our attachments to sense pleasures, to pleasant sense experience. We like it. We like pleasant sights and pleasant sounds and nice feelings in the body and pleasant thoughts and delicious food. I mean, how often... You know, can we be sitting lost in a reverie and just enjoying it? The hour goes quickly. You know, the bell, oh, that, that was nice. <laughs> and it says we're enjoying the pleasantness of that reverie. Investigating our attachment to pleasant sense experience really can reveal a lot about the great power in our own minds of addiction and fascination and enchantment because we see it over and over again. At one point I was this was er- relatively early in my practice when in, the, in the India days, before Burma. But I had been there for quite a while and I had been practicing you know, for months at a time. And I had gotten to a point where my mind was just wonderfully clear and bright. The concentration was good. And, the, and it was all very new to me. So there was a tremendous interest and a kind of excitement and you know, this whole inner world opening up with such clarity and luminosity. And I was having the kind of sittings where, you know, you think any moment you're going to get enlightened. So I'd be sitting in India and kind of in these kind of sittings, and then the tea bell would ring. And for tea in India, they served like a little cup of tea and two bananas about that big, two tiny bananas. Here I am, about to get enlightened. The tea bell rings. <laughs> I couldn't believe myself, watching myself, getting up, oh, I need my little banana. <laughs> it wasn't even a good banana. But just the power, the habit... You know, of this desire, the wanting, for what? But it's very strong. It keeps driving us and leading us and pulling us. When pleasant feelings arise, either in the moment, in our moment's experience, or in sort of the anticipated, you know, what the banana will, the feeling will be like, 
And so even if we're anticipating the pleasure, when we see that pleasant feeling arise in the mind, can we remember, and this is a practice, to practice remembering, contemplating the impermanence of that feeling. So that we're not continually seduced again and again by this wanting mind. Now it doesn't mean that we don't act in the world and that we don't enjoy the pleasant feelings when they come. But it does mean that we practice a clear enough awareness of the impermanence of them so that we're not driven either in our meditation or in our lives by this wanting for something that in its nature when we pay attention we see to be momentarily changing in addition to pleasant sense experiences we also get attached to pleasant meditative experiences and this becomes a more subtle arena of clinging now as you sit and slowly as the concentration begins to deepen you know you may have times maybe short times at first and then they get more extended when there are deep deep feelings of peace and calm and quiet and lightness in the body and sometimes blissful feelings all kinds of very pleasant feelings can happen in meditation and yet these feelings even though in and of themselves they are wholesome states many of them are the factors of enlightenment at a certain stage in practice they are actually called corruptions of insight all the things we've worked so hard for why are they called corruptions of insight at at a certain stage because until we see through them carefully it's easy to get attached to them we start holding on we start craving we start clinging to the calm to the peace to the stillness not seeing that they too are impermanent conditioned states at one point in burma with sayadaw I'd been going through a very long period of just kind of struggle in my practice. It was really kind of like slogging through the sittings and walkings and not much seemed to be happening. And, you know, my body was heavy and unpleasant sensations. And this went on for weeks. And every day I seemed to go in and just report the same thing over and over again. So finally, after weeks of this, there was a kind of breakthrough and I kind of you know it was like coming out of the clouds when you're in a plane and all of a sudden everything was open and clear and bright and smooth so I was very happy of course and I went in to report it to Sayadaw I reported it the second day the third day by the third day he said haven't you enjoyed this enough <laughs> uh, three days I've spent weeks struggling Because his interest was in freedom. It wasn't in enjoying a pleasant meditative state. 
And so we just have to be very clear about what the ultimate reference point is. You know, why are we practicing? Is it for something else that will change? Or is it really for freedom? Okay, let this one in too. (laughs) Freedom is not in some particular new experience. It's not about waiting for something special. Freedom comes with the mind of not grasping, of not clinging. And so a favorite mantra of mine, but you have to be very attentive to this because there's like a double negative, it doesn't matter to what we don't cling. You got it? It doesn't matter to what we don't cling, which translates. (laughs) We don't have to wait for some new fantastic experience not to cling to. (laughs) Why not not cling now? (laughs) It doesn't matter to what we don't cling. And so right now, with whatever is happening, we can be practicing this mind of freedom. This is what our practice is. Okay, so attachment to pleasant sense experience, attachment to pleasant meditative experience, These are arenas to watch because there are strong habits of grasping there. Another arena where clinging and grasping are very strong and is the cause of incredible suffering in the world, in our own world, in our own world of relationship, and within our own mind, is the attachment, the clinging we have to our views and opinions about things. We have views and opinions about almost everything, even things we don't have a clue about. (laughs) It doesn't seem to stop them. The fact that we're completely ignorant (laughs) does not seem to stop this habit of mind of being attached to a view about it. You know, some time ago, there's a movie which I saw on video, uh, you may have seen a while ago, uh, Welcome to Sarajevo. And it was just this incredible documentary movie about the beginning and then the continuance of the conflict there. And of course this is just one place out of endless number of places where these conflicts are happening. But it was particularly poignant in a way because there was such divisiveness and killing and violence over attachment to national and religious viewpoints. Now people held so tightly, were so bound up with a particular view. And of course this happens, as I say, it happens all over. We can see in our own lives, even if we don't engage in that kind of violence, 
how much of the conflicts in our interpersonal relationships happen because we're attached to a viewpoint, we're attached to our own opinion. And even when, in those situations, where we really do have some authentic knowledge, some authentic understanding, can we practice not holding to it so tightly? Because it closes us, even in that situation, to learning from other perspectives, other viewpoints. No matter the depth of our understanding, I don't think anyone here has the omniscience of a Buddha. So it's not unlikely that we're not right all the time. (laughs) If we can hold even what we know, even the wisdom which we may have developed, if we can hold it lightly, it really keeps us from this attachment to view which is the source of so many sectarian conflicts. I mean, people getting into fights over the nature of enlightenment. (laughs) You're not really selfless, I am. There was a 17th century Zen master, Japanese, his name was Bankai. It's a wonderful book of his teachings, but one line in particular stands out. He said, don't side with yourself. (laughs) And just as a good reminder, you know, as we go through the day of paying attention in this arena of views and opinions, and it doesn't mean that we don't have them, because we do, and we need to relate and work and respond in the world. And we can do it from a viewpoint. It's a question of how attached are we? How tightly are we holding? There's attachment and clinging to pleasant sense experience, to pleasant meditative experience, to views and opinions. The last arena of attachment which I'll talk about is in some sense the deepest, the most profound, and really at the root of all the other suffering that exists. And this is the very strong attachment we have, deeply, deeply conditioned to the idea, the concept of self, of I. Of course, this is the Buddha's great gift of understanding. seeing through the attachment to self. When we pay attention, and this is an ongoing deepening of our understanding, as we pay attention to this process of change, of constant flux of every aspect of our experience, we see that there is nothing there, nothing in the experience that we can call self or I precisely because it's all changing. That self is a concept, it's an idea. It's not something existing in itself. You know, some mornings ago, I think in the question period, I made reference to the Big Dipper. And some people chuckled a bit, some of you. 
And then somebody in an interview came, is there kind of an in-joke about the Big Dipper? <laughs> well, this is the moment of revelation for those one or two of you. <laughs> this is an example which I have been using for the last 30 years. Uh, go out at night, look up at the sky. Most of you probably are aware of that constellation. It's an easy one to pick out. Okay, you've been here almost now, what, four weeks, three weeks, four weeks. So consider this question the midterm exam. (laughs) Is there really a Big Dipper up there? (laughs) (laughs) There is no Big Dipper. We go out, we look at it, we see certain points of light in a particular pattern. We create a concept. We create an idea. You know, it has an association. Oh, yeah, it looks like a dipper. So we put this name, we put this concept on that. And it, it serves some purpose. You know, because it kind of point, part of it points to the North Star, and if you want to know where North is. But there's no big dipper up there. <laughs> well, Self, or Joseph, or Miyoshin, or each one of us. Joseph is on the same, I don't know the proper philosophical term, same categorical level as Big Dipper. It's a concept referring to a constellation of thoughts and feelings and sensations and emotions, all the aggregates of experience, which are constantly in flux, constantly changing. There's an appearance, just like there's an appearance of the relationship of those points of light, we name the appearance, oh, Big Dipper, Joseph. But then, because we don't really pay careful attention, we start to believe that Big Dipper or self or Joseph really exists, that it's an existing thing and not simply a designation, not simply a concept. So we get caught, we get attached by this. Now, and this I think becomes very illuminating for those of you who are familiar with that constellation, if you go out at night, try looking up at the sky and not seeing the Big Dipper. It's really difficult. You know, our mind is so attuned. So if it's hard not to see Big Dipper, (laughs) it takes a little work to break through the conditioning we have about our view of self, of I. But even when we begin to get a, a sense of this, you know, through that example, or there are many others, and we begin to maybe have or open to the possibility yeah, that self is perhaps a concept, not something existing in itself. Even when we begin to open to this understanding, there is still very often a direct felt sense of I. And even if we begin to understand the concept of selflessness, Still, in our moment-to-moment experience, we feel as if there's a self. Okay, well, where does this come from? 
How is this felt sense of I created? It's created in each moment that we identify with one aspect of our experience or another. For example, we identify a lot with the body, with our experience of the body. It's often our first response to the question, who am I? Well, this is who I am. You know, you get up in the morning, you look in the mirror, yep, that's me, again. (laughs) You know, we're seeing an appearance of the body, and we identify with it. We take it to be who we are. But when we examine or investigate the nature of the body more closely, more carefully, that identification really begins to fall away, and it's tremendously freeing when it does fall away. Just you probably, most of you probably have not seen autopsies, but maybe you can imagine what an autopsy is like. You're cutting the body open and then really seeing all the organs and blood and muscle and Probably not such a strong identification, you know, when the body is opened up like that. Oh yes, I'm the liver. <laughs> you know, we don't identify with the liver, or the guts, or the blood. We're not, we're not taking liver to be self. But somehow we package it all nicely in skin. Oh yeah, that's me. It's because we're not looking deeply. We, we settle for a very superficial perception. Yeah, on the surface. You know, the body looks a certain way. But as we begin to explore it more deeply, everything we think of identifying with as being self, it begins to fall away, it begins to vanish. Well, think of looking at the body on a microscopic level, not just on an anatomically open level, but on a microscopic level. I read someplace that, you know, on the, I don't know, atomic or cellular level, if all the space were removed from the body, the matter, the size of the matter that would be left, would be smaller than a particle of dust. That's me. (laughs) It's just that we're not seeing carefully enough. We're not looking carefully enough. And so we live in this delusion with this strong attachment to the body. And it's not theoretical. It has very powerful consequences. Because of our attachment to the body, which goes very deep, there's a tremendous fear of loss and fear of death. Close attention, as we pay close attention, you know, in sitting and in walking, and as we really refine our awareness of what we're calling the body, what we're taking to be self in that way. 
at some point, the form of the body begins to disappear. We're not so, when we're really in the realm of direct experience, of the sensations that we're feeling, we don't feel leg. We don't feel foot. We don't feel back. There's no sensation called foot. We're feeling tightness or pressure or lightness. That's what's happening on the experiential level. Everything else is a concept, an overlay. As we dwell more and more on that experiential level, the form and our attachment to the form really begins to diminish. We begin to experience the body not as something solid, but really as, a, as an energy field of changing, moving elements. Nothing solid there at all. And in that experience, we begin to identify with it less. Don't take it so much to be self. We create a sense of self not only with the body, when we identify with it. We create a strong felt sense of self in a very deep pattern that we have, and that is in our identification with the various thoughts that are arising in the mind. Thoughts, when we get lost in and identified with them, I'm thinking, I'm planning, I'm judging. Instead of being with the thought simply as another passing arising phenomena, we identify with it. We claim it as being I and mine. When we identify with the stories that we make up about experience, by now you've probably noticed that most of the time we are living in the world of projection. We are just projecting out our thoughts onto the world and believing it. And just think, and maybe as an exercise you might do as you go through the day, for those few of you who have thoughts about other yogis, Be attentive, you know, really make, make this an exercise. Be attentive to the arising of those thoughts. Really with a sense of how much is being projected onto that yogi. Based on one's own views and opinions and likes and dislikes. And we create stories, you know, the famous Vipassana romances and Vipassana vendettas. It's like we get lost in these internal thought dramas. We create a sense of self through our identification with them. The only power that thoughts have is the power that we give them. This is a huge lesson. You know, if nothing else were accomplished in this six weeks or three months, but to see the empty nature of thoughts, the essentially empty nature, be tremendously freeing. The only power that thoughts have in our minds is the power that we give them. Yet they are tremendously seductive. Unnoticed, when thoughts are unnoticed, they rule us, they drive us. I'd like to read something. This is a teaching on the nature of mind from 
Dilgo Kense Rinpoche, who was really one of the, the greatest of the Tibetan masters of the last century. He was, he was an amazing, amazing being and the, the teacher of uh, the Dalai Lama and many others, a teacher. So this, this is what he wrote. It's a, little, it's a little long, but the teaching is so direct, so if you can really focus on it. Like waves, all the activities of this life have rolled endlessly on, yet they have left us empty-handed. Myriads of thoughts have run through our minds, but all they have done is increase our confusion and dissatisfaction. Normally we operate under the deluded assumption that everything has some sort of true, substantial reality. But when we look more carefully, we find that the phenomenal world is like a rainbow, vivid and colorful, but without any tangible existence. When a rainbow appears, we see many beautiful colors. Yet a rainbow is not something we can clothe ourselves with or wear as an ornament. It simply appears through the conjunction of various conditions. Thoughts arise in the mind in just the same way. They have no tangible reality or intrinsic existence at all. There is therefore no logical reason why thoughts should have so much power over us, nor any reason why we should be enslaved by them. Once we recognize that thoughts are empty, the mind will no longer have the power to deceive us. But as long as we take our deluded thoughts as real, they will continue to torment us mercilessly, as they have been doing throughout countless past lives. To gain control over the mind, we need to be vigilant, examining all our thoughts, words, and actions. To cut through the mind's clinging, it is important to understand that all appearances are empty, like the appearance of a water of water in a mirage. Beautiful forms are of no benefit to the mind, nor can ugly forms harm it in any way. Sever the ties of hope and fear, attraction and repulsion, and remain in equanimity, in the understanding that all phenomena are nothing more than projections of your own mind. We can actually see this. You know, as you pay attention, as you notice, as you note all of these different thoughts that are arising and passing, the endless parade of them, and really pay attention to their insubstantiality, we begin to free ourselves from this pattern, this habit of identification with them. We come to a place at times when in the simple awareness of the thoughts they self-liberate. In the moment of awareness they can dissolve. We create a sense of self through identification with the body, through identification with thoughts, through identification with emotions. You know, I'm angry, I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm depressed, I'm calm, I'm peaceful. We add the sense of I to the simple arising of this mind state, 
this emotional feeling. These feelings are arising like clouds in the sky. They come together when the conditions are present, the conditions change, they dissolve. They don't belong to anyone. Anger angers. Fear fears. Love loves. There's no one behind them to whom they're happening. Each mind state is doing its own thing. But what happens when we're not resting in the simple awareness of the emotion, when we get lost in them, identified with them, reactive to them, it's as if we build this superstructure of self, a skyscraper of self, on top of momentary changing conditions. So we want to practice dropping down into the simple open awareness of the different emotions that are arising in the same way that we would sound. And we simply rest in that openness and watch the emotional energies, the clouds of these kind of feelings simply be there, arise, change, pass away. It takes a lot of practice because emotions to some extent are what we most personalize. It's easier to see thoughts come and go even though we get lost often. Emotions are more amorphous. It takes a lot of gentleness and openness to allow them to arise and wash through without getting caught, without getting hooked, without identifying with them and creating that sense of self. So the most subtle level which we identify, with which we identify and create self, is our identification with awareness, with awareness itself, with consciousness. With that identification, and this you probably have had this experience, of creating a sense of the observer, of the witness. Okay, we're, we're noticing the sensations in the body and thoughts and emotions and sounds, and we're seeing all of that as arising and passing in a flow of conditions, but we can become fixated, identified with that which is knowing them. And so we solidify the sense of self in that. We've created a reference point. We've created the observer in that moment. So how can we begin to decondition, let go of this identification with even awareness? A technique that I've suggested and used in my own practice for some time, and it's just, it's just a way of exploring, beginning this exploration, because this is a very subtle aspect that we work with, of framing the language, the way we're languaging our experience for a period of time in the passive voice. So, for example, a sound being known, a thought being known, a sensation being known. Because by languaging it in the passive voice, we take the I out of it. It's not I'm knowing a sound or I'm knowing a thought. It's a thought being known, a sensation being known. As you're walking, and this is where I really discovered this way of working, I was just walking and just the simplicity of feeling the sensations, it's like sensations were appearing in space, you know, as a function of the walking, you know, the heaviness and the 
the tension and the tightness and the lightness, all of that, the sensations were just appearing and being known. Magically. Spontaneously. Nobody was doing anything. And then you could take it one step further and hold the koan known by what? We don't do anything to create this knowing, this awareness. It is happening. Spontaneously, moment after moment, things are being known. This is the nature of mind. Well, known by what? And this is the great mystery, opening to the very nature of awareness itself. Buddhadasa, who was one of the great Thai monks also of this last century, and very open, extremely open-minded and integrated a lot of the teachings from various traditions, he said, we should really call mind emptiness, but because of the knowing faculty, we call it mind. And it just begins to capture a little bit the nature of mind. We should really call mind emptiness. There's nothing there to find. And yet because of the knowing faculty, we call it mind. So liberation through non-clinging. We accomplish this through seeing impermanence. Deeply, moment to moment. In any moment, because everything is always changing. So we simply need to pay attention to it. It's always happening. We accomplish this liberation through non-clinging, through the direct seeing, the direct experience of selflessness. It's really our experiences like empty phenomena rolling on. There's no self behind the phenomena to whom it is happening. What we call self is this process of phenomena simply rolling on, things being known, moment after moment. That's what's happening. This is the Buddha's teaching to his son, Rahula, and it's very powerful. He said, any kind of form whatsoever, Rahula, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, far or near, having seen all of these experiences as they really are with correct wisdom thus. This is is the practice. To see all experience thus, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. Through seeing it thus, one is liberated through non-clinging. So it would be an interesting exercise in your sitting, in your walking, from time to time, to apply that instruction, to remember whatever it is that's arising, whether it's the object or the awareness. Apply this to every aspect of experience. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. I recently was just looking at some of the suttas and and this phrase, which which the Buddha repeats often, uh, 
I saw it again, and I, I actually started using that, and it was amazing. In that moment, there's nothing left to be self, to be I. One is liberated in that moment by not clinging. Just to close, again the Buddha summed all of this teaching up when he said, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Whoever has heard this has heard all the teachings. Whoever practices this has practiced all the teachings. Whoever realizes this has realized all the teachings. This is not a philosophic statement. This is the Buddha's very profound instruction to us of what we need to practice. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. This is our practice moment to moment. And it's really the practice of freedom. Let's sit for a couple of minutes. Sounds being known. Vividly. (laughs) (laughs) The breath being known. The sensations of the body being known. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.